You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the comes to talk. How much time each day do you spend managing your personal or business calendar? 15 minutes, a half an hour, maybe more. Is the conference room available for next week's meeting? And how many people do you have to ask to find out? Have you ever misplaced or, worse yet, lost your day planner or handheld device? And what do you do about that missing information? Do you own or operate a salon or carpets cleaning business? How about a realty office or any one of a thousand other services? service-based organizations. Can your customers make their appointments even when your office is closed? If any of this sounds familiar, then Schedule Online is the solution for you. For more information, call toll-free 888-668-3355. That's 888-668-3355. Or visit us online at www.schedulonline.com. Hear that? You just gotta love that sound. Really, it's one of this country's great treasures. The unmistakable sound of a nice California Chardonnay. There's nothing like it. Well, except of course for the sound of nails pounding lumber, building new homes across America, or states sizzling on the grill. In fact, 40% of American products are shipped by freight railroads. From computers to produce, we even carry trucks. Really, chances are the things you'll use tomorrow are taking the train today. 70% of new American cars, 40% of the grain harvest. More Americans depend on us than ever. Freight railroads contribute more than $31 billion a year to the U.S. economy. And since one freight train carries a load of up to 500 trucks, that means less fuel, less traffic. A better environment, a better tomorrow. Tomorrow, arriving by train. Sponsored by North America's Freight Railroads. Listen, the world is talking. World Talk Radio. Interested in advertising on any of our shows? Please click the advertise link on the homepage or send an email to ads at worldtalkradio.com or you can click on the sponsor this show link on any of the show pages. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking today with Michael Vorenberg, professor at Brown University and author of Final Freedom, a history of the 13th Amendment, the amendment that ended slavery. Mike, in our first segment, we were talking about the origins of the amendment, the the need to have an amendment to end slavery because of the, the provisional nature of the Emancipation Proclamation. The amendment is first gets talked around in early 1864 and through the the summer of that year uh, starts to become an issue in politics. But there are a lot of people uh, on on different sides of that issue. In your book, you describe a rather uh, multifaceted political debate going on. What what are some of the issues there? Well, one group is unsurprising, and that would be the abolitionists. I've already mentioned them. After the proclamation of January 1st, 1863, the abolitionists want some measure to uh, secure abolition for all time. 
but their solution, their immediate solution, uh, is, as I said, a statute. They, they don't really care necessarily about the form of the proposal, so they don't immediately go to an amendment. But there's a different type of group that uh, was would eventually become crucial in this, and that uh, these would be called um, conservatives today, perhaps, uh, because they were not immediately uh, for abolition. Uh, they are people who were mostly Democrats, um, that is, against Lincoln. Um, and they're, they are against Lincoln, but they are for emancipation as a war measure. That is, they approve of the war, um, so they are war Democrats, they're pro-war Democrats, but they believe that the proclamation is unconstitutional. That is, they believe that Lincoln did not possess the power, uh, the constitutional power, to abolish slavery. And what they want is a constitutional measure. And, of course, the most constitutional measure possible is an amendment to the Constitution. And it is among this small group of anti-slavery Democrats uh, some of whom are in New York. The most important ones are in New York State. Um, and there are also some in the Midwest. It is among these people that the idea of abolishing slavery by amendment takes hold. And what would look strange to us is, for many of these people, that proposal is a form of criticizing Lincoln. It is not complementary to Lincoln. That is, it is a way of saying that Lincoln's solution is unconstitutional. Our solution is constitutional. So what you have eventually is a very strange uh, coalition, and that's probably the wrong word because these two are not actually in touch with one another, but they just happen to support the same thing. And that would be these Democrats who want an anti-slavery amendment, uh, but who do not like Lincoln and are certainly uh, not abolitionists. And then the abolitionists who think that Lincoln is too slow on emancipation and that the proclamation doesn't go far enough, and they eventually uh, uh, attach themselves to this amendment. So that just gives you an example of, of the differing groups behind this thing. And this... Uh supports ultimately one of the, the conclusions you draw uh, regarding the original intent of the 13th Amendment, uh, which is that, that there isn't any, uh, or, or it's so contingent and so complex uh, that, that it's not really realistic to say, here's what the authors meant. Is that yeah. a fair statement? Excuse me? That, does that reflect, is that a fair statement of, of yes, your view Yes, it, it does reflect it. Um Original intent is a phrase that can have many meanings. Um, at its simplest level, it can mean that you can somehow detect one intention of a group of people who adopt a, a measure or who pass a, um, or who, let's say, uh, pass a Supreme Court decision or, more importantly, adopt a, a, uh, some type of measure that becomes a part of the Constitution, such as an amendment. Um, legal scholars understand that originalism has to be more complicated than that, that there's always multiple intentions. Uh, even the people who would call themselves originalists understand this. 
Um, but I, I wanted, part of what I wanted to do is to show just how impossible it is to detect one original intent or even uh, to lay out very clearly a number of original intentions because they change so quickly over time. Uh, in this case, you have abolitionists who are clearly believing that an anti-slavery measure will abolish slavery. Um, and ideally, what their vision is of what the Constitution should do, if it doesn't all, already do it, as some said, was to uh, be a document of absolute equality. In contrast, the, these Democrats I mentioned, they want slavery abolished as a way to cripple the South so that the Union will win the war, the war will be over quickly. And they're not thinking in terms of what rights ultimately this will mean for African Americans or anybody else. Uh, so what is their original intention? And how does that original intention have any type of relevance to the present? And th those are tough questions. But at the very basic level, what we see is people who end up on the same side, but with a very different intentions, very different visions of the future of the country. Now, the campaign of 1864, well, there's actually two campaigns. There's the, the presidential electoral campaign yes. uh, through the summer of 1864, and then, of course, there's the campaigns of Grant and Sherman uh, in Virginia and, and in the mountains near Atlanta uh, going on simultaneously. And there's also some important naval operations. Um, in the southeast uh, around Mobile Bay, of course. But, yeah, and these things are completely linked. Uh, that is, the fortunes of Lincoln and the Republicans go up and down with the fortunes of the Union Army. And in the same way, uh, the Confederacy, as it fights its uh, military campaigns, uh, is very much has an eye on the uh, the Union elections, because they know that if McClellan wins, the Democratic candidate, uh, their chances of negotiating some type of uh, ceasefire, or even better, a peace, but at the very least, uh, a permanent peace, that is, with, with independence for the Confederacy, but at the very least, some kind of ceasefire, that those odds go up if, if McClellan is elected. So they have their eyes on the, on the Union election, too. Now, last week on the show, I was talking to Richard McMurray, uh, mm -hmm. And he, in, in his book uh, on the hypothetical Fourth Battle of Winchester, uh, draws up this, this, this counterfactual scenario where McClellan does win the election of 1864. Mm -hmm. But in his version, uh, not only does McClellan, McClellan wins because Grant is soundly defeated, but even so, the same thing happens in the West as happened historically. Sherman captures Atlanta, gets down to Savannah, comes up through the Carolinas. And by the time McClellan's inaugurated, the Union has won the war anyway. Yes. His point being that McClellan's election was not, Lincoln's re-election was, was not vital to the, the Union war effort, which is contrary to what most people in the field think. What do you think of that? Yeah, it's an interesting argument. Um, of course, counterfactuals are, are often difficult. I think that's a very valuable argument. I think that, I mean, if you step back for a moment, McClellan was running on a platform uh, that included a peace plank, or certainly a plank that, of course, the Republicans made much of that said that the war up to this point has been a failure. Uh, this was sort of a, the concession at the Democratic Convention to the 
the Peace Democrats, that they got to write some of the platform. But McClellan was himself not a Peace Democrat. In his letter of acceptance, uh, of course, he makes it very clear that he's first and foremost for prosecute, prosecuting the war uh, to a point that um, the Union is reunited. And so McClellan can often be uh, maligned as ready to give up the Union. And while it's okay to malign him for other reasons, I think that that is unfair. So I think there's something to that argument. That is to say that if McClellan, who would not have come into office until March of 1865, uh, by that time, under this counterfactual you describe, yes, if uh, Sherman's taken Atlanta, which was, after all, the crucial moment in at least I think the crucial moment in terms of getting Lincoln reelected. Mm-hmm. It's a crucial moment in, in re- restoring or reinvigorating at least union, the Union people's confidence in their armies. And uh, we assume that Farragut takes Mobile Bay. These victories are huge. Um, and they may have uh, given McClellan good reason to keep on prosecuting the war. He would have been advised, I think, by commanders uh, not to allow a ceasefire. And the uh, so the war may well have, it, it, he may well have been victorious. Now, that's not to say that Lincoln's election isn't important. I think Lincoln's election is crucial. Maybe not the most crucial thing for the winning of the war, but it has a, a tremendous importance in terms of the post-war world. Um, just to give you, I mean, for example, uh, what does that mean in terms of how Lincoln was working out Reconstruction in the states during those last months of his life? I think things would have been worked out very differently by McClellan in those last months uh, of the war. So that I still would hold that Lincoln's election is very, very important. And, and certainly it, it seemed that way at the time, as you pointed out a moment ago, to the, the Confederacy and obviously to those in the North. The campaign, the, the 13th Amendment was not really much of a campaign issue. Uh, you point out that, that race was a campaign issue, uh, and particu- particularly the, uh, the miscegenation phenomenon, mm-hmm. uh, much more than the 13th Amendment itself. Uh, what, what, how did that work out? Well... Yeah, I, I should say that one of the things, uh, I have a chapter on the election of 1864, although the election sort of hangs over much of the book. Let me jump ahead a bit. Sure. Uh, in December of 1864, uh, Lincoln, uh, in his annual message to Congress, says essentially that in the uh, I'll paraphrase here, that in the recent election, the people have spoken and that they have given us a mandate for this anti-slavery amendment. Technically, it is true that the amendment was on the Republican platform, I should say the National Union Party. The, the Republican Party changed its name in the 1864 election to the National Union Party as a way to make itself look uh, like a broader coalition but it's still the Republican Party for the most part. In any case, Lincoln goes before Congress in December of 1864 to say that the election signifies a mandate for the 13th Amendment. This then led me to say, well, 
okay, let's go look at that election and say, was it really an election where the people were talking about the amendment, where uh, when people went to the polls, uh, they said, okay, one of the things I'm deciding here is whether this amendment is going to come to be. We've seen in our own lifetimes, and this always happens, that when the election is over, politicians often claim that the election meant one thing when, for many people who voted, it, it didn't quite mean that. And I think that was the case here. That is, I, I don't mean to accuse Lincoln of being deceitful or even disingenuous. I think for him, the election was very meaningful in terms of emancipation. But I do think he overstated things when he said this was a mandate of the people. Um, it's a little bit like saying that the people have voted for a contract with America. Um, this, in, in Lincoln's lifetime, uh, excuse me, in Lincoln's mind, this may well have been a mandate of the people, but the fact is that during the election, the amendment was not much discussed. What is discussed, uh, well, the number of things are discussed. Lincoln is a failed war leader, certainly, but the race issue emerges as very important. Um, it is during this election that the word miscegenation is born. Uh, this is a word that means race mixing. It's a complicated history, uh, well detailed in David Long's book on uh, on the election of 1864, a book called The Jewel of Liberty. And he tells the story in much fuller detail about the race issue and miscegenation as an issue. In a sense, it becomes a one of those things that so focuses people's attention, becomes so much a rhetoric about how the Republicans are want full equality for, uh, the, for, for all blacks, that they endorse race mixing. That is, uh, they would endorse, inter, if not encourage, intermarriage between white and black. Um, that that, and that's not actually a real issue. That is, that's hardly part of what the Republicans on the Republicans' agenda. Um, but it's one of those issues that so excites the public mind that it dominates political rhetoric. It dominates the pamphlets, the, the political language, because it's something that can rouse people. And as a result, it overshadows any sort of meaningful uh, discussion or debate about the merits or uh, the disadvantages of, a, of, a, of an amendment abolishing slavery. Now, Lincoln is, is surprisingly silent on the amendment during the uh, campaign of 1864. He seems to be focusing his efforts on trying to smoke out the Confederates and Jefferson Davis and getting them to say, we are going to fight this war till we're independent. Because yeah, a, yeah. well, he's got a lot of Democrats saying, you're just fighting this war to end slavery now. You've turned it into a slave war. And if, if Davis will say, we don't care about slavery, we're fighting until we're independent, that uh, diffuses that criticism. And so you get those peace feelers, which I thought were quite curious uh, stories. Yeah. <clears throat> the other, the race is an issue, as I mentioned, but equally an issue, if, if not in the minds of people, even more an issue, is this question of, it's really a question of what the war is about. And it's a it's a, it effectively a debate to define the war. Um, it's a complicated story again, and the Confederates are playing a hand. The Confederates want to spread the uh, what is effectively uh, misinformation or disinformation uh, that if Lincoln would simply back off on emancipation, 
the Confederacy would surrender. This, in fact, is not true. Um, Jefferson Davis, the, the whole government of the Confederacy, uh, rests on keeping the people of the South behind the principle of a, of a new nation. And uh, he would have lost all support, all remaining support, the whole Confederate war effort, I think, would have lost the support of its of its people uh, if they said, well, let's just say that we'll go back into the Union if they let us keep our slaves. Um, so this, there's nothing true to this misinformation. Uh, that's misinformation. And what they want is for the northern people to be furious with Lincoln and to turn against him more than they ever have uh, and to believe that this war could be over tomorrow if Lincoln would just back off on, on, on emancipation. And, of course, that type of rhetoric becomes increasingly meaningful and powerful as Union losses become greater and greater, uh, especially as Grant heads into the wilderness. And that's why it's so powerful. And, of course, the Democrats... Uh, are happy to propagate this myth because it serves their interest for Lincoln to be unpopular. Um, so it becomes a war to define the war, basically. And and this will uh, the, the amendment eventually will off the table, but as you point out, that doesn't come up till after the election. That's right. Uh, Lincoln wins the election, but then we have the struggle to ratify the Thirteenth Amendment. Let's take another break. We'll come back in just a few moments with Michael Vorenberg and talk about the fate of the 13th Amendment on Civil War Talk Radio.